You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse. my pleasure to introduce our guest for today. We've got the Reverend Professor David P. Gushy, who is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University, Chair of Christian Social Ethics. Um, And I don't know if I can even say this, uh, Virgie (laughs) Universitat, you can help me out later, David, in Amsterdam, and Senior Research Fellow IBTS, one of America's leading Christian ethicists. He is the author or editor of more than 25 books. Um, Some of these probably you are familiar with, including Changing Our Mind, After Evangelicalism, Kingdom Ethics, Still Christian, Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, and the Sacredness of Human Life. Gushy has led significant activist efforts on climate, torture, and LGBTQ inclusion, and is a keynote speaker at churches, forums, and universities. Gushy has also written hundreds of opinion pieces and given interviews to scores of major outlets and podcasts. He and his wife, Jeannie, live in Atlanta, Georgia. And so, David, we're just so grateful to have you on Inverse Podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Drew and Jared. Uh, Good to be with you and with your friends this evening. Yeah, yeah. David, as... Oh, yeah, go, Drew. Sorry, mate. No, just going to say really excited to have you and I'm grateful for all the work that you've been doing. And so, yeah, definitely looking forward to this conversation. David, as I shared a little bit before um, uh, we press record, uh, I, I've been reading you and your uh, writings have been in the background of a lot of my life. But you have a new book out um, that you were kind enough to give us a sneak peek at. And I was super excited to see um, uh, how Thurman um, has yep. been placed center of um, uh, these new considerations uh, for you. Would you sketch a little bit about this new project that is just about to be released? Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Um, uh, the I'm looking at the uh, at the big old sprawling table of contents, so I don't I don't miss anything. Um, <laughs> uh, it's called Introducing Christian Ethics, and it is. It is um, a new overview of, you know, like what I would say about Christian ethics here uh, in the senior stage of my career. Um, I've been doing this for about 30 years. Some, some of, uh, as you mentioned, uh, some of uh, your listeners will know me for my partnership uh, with Glenn Stassen in the book, right. King, Kingdom Ethics. Uh, yeah. Glenn, Glenn died in 2014, and, and this is kind of like, my effort to offer my take on Christian ethics, that it engages his work, but it also kind of, a lot of stuff has happened since 2014 when he died, you know? Um, there's, my thinking has evolved and uh, the situation in our cultures uh, has evolved dramatically. So, so it is um, a, a pretty comprehensive overview of Christian ethics that attempts to to treat everything that I think at least would be important to introduce. So you got moral theory, you've got um, how do we know what we know, a lot of work on scripture and method. 
Um, there's a there's a a thread, a major thread running through of a kind of a liberationist hermeneutic, and Thurman is who I focus on as one of the first voices that got through to me to say that the the, the Bible is best understood from the perspective of those who have been pushed to the margins or mistreated. Um, so so there's more of a feminist um, dimension of of this book as well. I have a chapter on patriarchy in which I think I take down patriarchy pretty well. Um, <laughs> um, I talk about the kingdom of God, uh, what I make of the Sermon on the Mount at this point. I then talk about uh, four central, five central norms that ought to govern our ethics, and that is truthfulness, sacredness or dignity, justice, love, and forgiveness. So, so that, that, that hasn't, I haven't ever done that before. And then in the last half of the book, I deal with all kinds of moral issues like uh, creation, patriarchy, white supremacism, uh, economic ethics, abortion, sex, marriage, church state, uh, police and crime issues, uh, uh, war and peace, end of life stuff. And in the end, I talk about for ministers, what does it mean to be a, a, a minister who has responsibilities for leading Christian people? And then the question, why is following Jesus so dang hard? So, so <laughs> that, that is what the, where the book goes. Um, I'm excited about it. It releases on January 11th. It'll be available for pre-order really quite soon. And yeah, uh, would you, are you thinking like this book is going to be, um, primarily just read in classrooms? Are you thinking like this is a book that will be read like even, you know, in church communities or like who do you think or who are you expecting or who are you writing to? Who is, who is your audience for this book? The human race. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if there's any interested aliens, you know, they're welcome to read <laughs> they're it They're welcome too. to follow Jesus too. Yeah. Uh, they are. Um, it's written, um, what people who have read it said is it's written, um, in a uniquely accessible way where real mm -hmm. people can real people can understand it. Yeah. Even yeah. compared to kingdom ethics, I think it's less jargony and less yeah. less difficult to wrap your mind around. So you don't have to have a master's degree to read and understand the book. Um, I think maybe it, it has managed um, to be both a usable textbook and a book that can be uh, read in churches, yeah. um, but also just by regular people like, you know, maybe you, you people will dip in and out of it as like, I really want to think about this issue. And, and so yeah. it's, it's uh, people are describing it as kind of comprehensive and encyclopedic, but accessible. Each of the yeah. chapters is like 4,000 words. It can be read in 30 minutes, you know, right. 40 minutes. So, so uh, I don't know. Um, and the book also is coming out multimedia from the beginning um, yeah. with ebook and audio and even visual uh, lectures where I'm actually reading the text, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of excited about that. I hope that's going to be used all over the world uh, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, no, I found it to be very accessible and I really appreciated. I mean, it did feel very comprehensive in terms of um, all the different, um, you know, chapters that you're covering, the topics that you um, engage that I think, I mean, they just touch right on the issues that the questions that people are asking right around. Mm -hmm how we should live today. So yeah, I think that's, uh, it's people going to find it quite uh, meaningful for their own lives. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, 
mean, I hope that it builds on Kingdom Ethics and yeah. that the, the, the two books will be read together. Um, I certainly don't ever need to write another intro to Christian Ethics. I think this, <laughs> this pretty right. much covers it. <laughs> no, I, I was sharing with Drew that um, as somebody who's dyslexic, I deeply appreciated the, um, the links to the YouTube. So um, like in the last 24 hours, I've had you in my ear um, for most of the waking day when I was doing chores. So um, I, I really appreciated that um, in terms of the accessibility. But I also, I, I was talking with Drew beforehand, the fact that um, you have a section in the book where um, you allow um, African-American literature um, to be a prophetic voice against um, uh, European-American Christianity and just allow those texts um, uh, to, to speak for themselves. And literally, you, you go from um, uh, like Toni Morrison to Langston Hughes to Du Bois um, uh, and, and like Octavia Butler, like one after another, providing um, space in a um, ethics text for the critique of um, uh, uh, white dominant American Christianity. I thought that was really powerful really powerful um two things i'm really glad that the that the youtube is working how was the sound quality jared how did, how did it how did it sound to you it was great and your books looked super impressive as well one of the things i wish they had on youtube <laughs> drew and i were sharing you can't zoom in to see like what books are actually on the shelf um but no <laughs> it, it looked good <laughs> that's cool um I had to record those lectures twice. My voice was in shreds, you know, oh, when, no, when that was over. Twice. Yeah, I had to do it twice. Um, oh my. Um, but you know, you know, it's interesting in the states right now. Uh, you know, you know that discussion of white supremacism has has threatened people when, like, governor candidates in Virginia are trying to get Toni Morrison stripped out of the curriculum, you know, yeah, out of well, like yeah. school. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's, you know, in ethics and in theology, there's a, you know, there's an important uh, a method called, you know, womanism. So there's womanist theology, womanist ethics, mm -hmm. uh, womanist biblical interpretation. But I learned from uh, Katie Cannon, uh, womanist, one yeah. of the first womanist ethicists, yeah. that one, one of the main ways you go to look for truth about the African-American experience is in the novels. Mm -hmm. And so I immersed in those novels and they, they blow the doors off of all of our white illusions about uh, our Christianity and um, about our society. And so I'm really glad that that, that speaks. I did that originally uh, for um, a, my American Academy of Religion presidential address a few years ago. But um, I thought, you know, I don't think I can improve on that as my path into that chapter on um, race and white supremacism in, in Christianity. Hmm. And Thurman so helped too. I, I did want to um, mention before um, uh, allow Drew to um, take us, uh, invite you to um, uh, open up the text um, or at least reference the text that we will open up later. Is that um, you mentioned before the, the evolution from kingdom ethics? Um, but to say and to make clear to people um, that this isn't an evolution away from um, like Glenn Stason and, and his work, but an evolution within the trajectory of um, his vision and groundbreaking scholarship around the Sermon on the Mount and um, uh, being able to actually apply that to what's happening um, now. And I, I thought, and maybe we could get into this a little later, one of the things that um, you, you released an article a little while back around rethinking the kingdom um, 
uh, in terms of expectations, and you, you talk about um, Thurman and the, his vision of the reign of God as um, more of a mystical um, interior reality that sustains you in the midst of um, these domination systems. Um, and so I, I would love to maybe um, uh, be able to get into some of that as well, particularly for um, so many of our listeners um, aren't merely scholars, but um, practitioners and what it is when you're on the front line and facing these, you know, devastating realities of our um, climate catastrophe, ecological crisis, um, like the, the continued fallout of colonialism and white supremacy um, and how that applies to all these different systems in our society. Um, where you've shifted on that, I find really encouraging. Mm. Um, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, I, I think that you can actually see a, a trajectory from the first edition of Kingdom Ethics in 2003, mm -hmm. um, which was, you know, very evangelical, very, very fuller seminary, you know, very, mm -hmm. um, very American and, and I think pretty white, you know, it was a good book, but you know, that's, so that's, that's 2003. And then uh, the second edition, we made some progress. Glenn died in 2014, but we had a chance to kind of talk about changes. Uh, probably the most significant was the LGBT shift. Um, yeah. But but now since 2014, I mean, a lot of these conversations have exploded in some different places. So yeah. I, I would say, I hope, I hope that readers who know my previous work and Glenn's work will see it indeed as as a trajectory fulfilled, a trajectory extended in a way that Glenn up in heaven would be saying, I'm proud of, I'm proud of you. You did it. You know, you're, mm. you're, you're not, you're not fossilizing me. You're keeping my thought alive and extending it in some good ways. Um, yeah. That's what I'm going for there. Hopefully it succeeded. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So David, you know, um, one of the things that we like to do um, is to ground a lot of our conversation in scripture um, to kind of set the tone for our conversation and some of your own story. And so uh, what passage have you chosen um, that you would like to read um, that has the potential to turn our world upside down? What's that text? Um, that's pretty radical of you to start with the Bible like that through. I appreciate it. It's a good, it's a good call. So here's what I picked. Uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. That's good, that's good. I already, I told Jared when I heard that that was a text, I was like, oh, our brother's playing zero games today. We're going to have a good conversation. So, yeah, we're excited yeah. to get into that later. Thanks. Everybody, make sure you got your seatbelt on. Um, as an aside, it's one of my favourite passages of, of Scripture, so I'm very excited. 
Um, you, you might hear echoes of um, McClendon in our next question, but the, uh, your focus in your ethics on um, uh, truthfulness, um, we want uh, biography and the humility of biography um, uh, to actually, you know, be an invitation into someone's theology. So this next question that we ask guests is, when do you first remember encountering the Bible, David? I was raised Catholic and um, my, my parents were not Bible readers. What I, what I remember, and I used to joke with my mom about this, um, there was this massive family Bible about as big as a truck that was in, <laughs> in the, um, the room that we were not allowed to go into except when guests came. Um, and so that, that's kind of uh, my encounter with the Bible was this massive book, um, bigger than a house, that was on display in a room that we weren't allowed to go into except for when people came. So the Bible was not a part of my life at all until I stumbled into that Southern Baptist church in 1978 on a random Friday afternoon, and four days later was a converted born-again Christian. I talk mm. about that in my memoir, that story. Mm. And after, after that, uh, the people in that church who welcomed me so graciously, as soon as they got to know me, knew there was a lot to be done with this young man, a lot to be done to clean him up and get him, <laughs> get, get him discipled on the Christian way, you know? So, um, so they, they put a Bible in my hand really quickly. In fact, it must have been two different factions in that church gave me two different Bibles. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the more the merrier. Oh, that's right. Um, one of those Bibles was the King James Bible, and the other Bible was the Living Bible. You remember the Living Bible? It, it was a groovy kind of 70s translation, and, you know, Jesus rapped with his buddies, and they said, hey, why don't we go, you know, and it was like that. So that guy who came up with that Bible made a lot of money. So, so um, I was 16 years, uh, 16 years old. I was dealing with these, thou's, thy's, and Dines in the King James Bible, and then the groovy, uh, the groovy Bible um, of the Living Bible. That one was actually more helpful to me. And I gobbled up Scripture because that's what you did when you were a new Christian in that church. Sunday school, Sunday evening, uh, Wednesday night, Monday night Bible study, and and it it was. I mean, I didn't understand it all, and people said different things about it. But the idea that what believers do is they read the Bible seriously, faithfully, and constantly. That was what I learned. And, and that reshaped the stuff that was going into my mind and heart beginning that summer of my 16th year. Um, so it was, it was transformative because I had never, I had never been exposed to the, to, to Christianity in a way. I mean, I mean, I was raised Catholic. My mom, sent me to church. We, I did confirmation, but I was just not clued in. I just wasn't aware of what was there. Um, so the Bible came alive to me at that stage and has been my constant companion ever since. So I do have a more critical relationship with the text today than I did when I was a, you know, 16 year old. Yeah. Sure. Well, let's, let's go right there then. Right. So one of the things we're always interested in is, um, what has, what was first, your encounter with scripture, um, was it something that was liberative? Was it oppressive? Was it healing? Was it harmful? 
And then I'd love to hear some of the shifts that have gone on since then. Um, it was healing in the sense that as a 16 year old, I had no idea why I existed. Um, I was disoriented, confused, and um, I needed a psychological and spiritual and moral center. I needed a purpose. And I was taught a reading of scripture that gave me that kind of um, organizing center around such ideas as God loves you mm -hmm. and Jesus died on the cross for you. And um, you could be confident of eternal life. Um, and now Jesus is to be your Lord. And so you read the Bible all the time to figure out what lordship requires, right? Um, and you have a purpose in relation to friends, which unfortunately was you're supposed to evangelize everybody all the time, right? That, that, was, that was not liberative. <laughs> um, that was oppressive because, because my relationship with other humans of my age was reorganized into that mm. missionary mindset mm. that I still have on my shelf somewhere that original King James Bible with the names written in of all the people I was going to try to convert, you know, that mm, next year, targets. my wow. targets. Yeah. And not one of them converted. I was an awful evangelist, just <laughs> awful. Um, and I felt, I felt guilt over my failures in that area. Um, mm. I would say I was taught a kind of a moral perfectionism. I mean, now mm. that you're a new believer, you're supposed to be winning over sin. And so, um, so there was a lot of, um, expectation of myself to clean up my act and be a morally pure 16 year old boy which was probably a contradiction in terms you know at least it was for me um you know so but on the whole on the whole nobody partly because of my social location i now understand nobody ever taught me the bible in a way that made me feel bad about myself that marginalized me well only time I felt bad about myself is if I failed to meet the moral standards that I agreed were the right moral standards for me. Right. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. but it wasn't somebody um, telling me that something about my identity or personhood, I should feel ashamed of or something, you know? So, so the Bible was mainly liberative. It was soul organizing and centering. Um, and it gave me a sense of purpose. So it really worked well at that stage. Um, I would say um, it took me um, more than 30 years to really begin to understand the use of the Bible as a weapon. Hmm. Um, and it was really, it was really, well, I mean, there was an earlier stage. When, when I was uh, a new seminary professor jumping ahead in my story, and we, and the big fight at that time in the early nineties was uh, women in ministry. And, and when I saw the anguish of gifted and called women being uh, hit over the head with the Bible and told that you can't be who you are called to be because of our interpretation of the Bible, yeah. um, it registered, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it didn't register as much as it should have. Mm -hmm. it, um, when I did my dissertation on the Holocaust and I learned that that many people turned their backs on Jews during the Holocaust when they could have helped them or should have helped them because the Bible was read in an anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic way um, that registered. Mm -hmm. um, and it became an important part of, of my work on that issue. 
But I think it was only when I took on the LGBTQ issue and it became very personal because it had to, it had to do with my sister, with my friends at church who were um, LGBTQ and with young people who I was increasingly encountering in their misery as they were being brutalized by their families and churches that I, that this, that the uh, oppressive uses of the Bible to deeply harm people, even to the point of family rejection, self-harming and suicide, that it really registered as deeply as it should have all along. And then um, I was much more open to um, uh, black theology <coughs> and womanist theology saying, hey, by the way, that's the way the Bible has been used against us for hundreds of years. Um, and so the commitment to reading scriptures from the margins crystallized with a ferocity really only after, say, 2014, when all of that stuff kind of went down in my life. Huh. Wow. David, in such a powerful way, your, your personal story um, sums up so much of what we seek to invite people into in the inverse spaces, not merely the podcast, but um, the uh, we run subversive seminary during the week as well, which is a accessible place for people to actually um, uh, learn theology and reflect on their practice. And we have a decolonizing Sunday school, which happens um, uh, on a Saturday night for mm -hmm. those in the U S um, but for uh, those um, el elsewhere in the world happens on a, on a Sunday. Um, and so much of those spaces have been um, seeking a, a tender listening spirituality um, for people to um, uh, seek to find maybe for the first time um, healing ways, liberative ways, delivering ways of reading the scriptures. What would you offer? Um, and you, you've offered so much, um, particularly doing this process of um, your own academic life in public, um, and what you've shared in terms of your own journey. But if someone was to knock on your office door um, today, asking the question about your own personal journey towards a, a liberative way of reading the scriptures, what would you offer in response today? Um, I would say you have to, especially if your social location has been one of privilege. Um, you have to find a path out of the obliviousness of privilege. Mm. Mm. The, the learned obliviousness. And, and just open your heart to um, access in your heart and not just in your mind awareness of the harm done by obliviously privileged people and how they've read the Bible and how they've interpreted uh, the Christian faith. And also the, the incredibly insightful um, new paths, new liberative paths of reading the Bible that are available all around us from people who never had that privilege or, or who have learned to renounce it as far as possible, right? Um, the um, but, and you have to do it. You can't just do it with books. You need to be in community. I mean, you need to be with yeah. people who embody different narratives, different stories, and who's, um, who can only really 
teach you if you humbly listen to what they have to say, I think, in real human community, you know. After I wrote Changing Our Mind in 2014, I received this amazing gift. That was my book calling for LGBTQ inclusion. Yeah. Um, Which is brilliant, and I use yeah. it all the time pastorally. Yeah. It's my go-to text. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jared. Um, that book, if there was ever a Holy Spirit anointed book in my life, it was that one. That came out of way beyond what I could possibly have imagined. Um, it came out of suffering in my life. I can say more if you want. But anyway, when that, when that book came out, some new suffering came. Everybody in the evangelical establishment decided I was a heretic going to hell. And I lost friends, community, uh, opportunity, status, honor. I was pushed to the margins mm. in a most forceful way. And then, and now of course I licked my wounds and I hated it and I didn't like it. Um, but then there was like the gift of 18 year old gay kids from Christian families who were staying with friends because their parents had kicked them out, who direct messaged me on Facebook, you know, and said, hey, can I talk with you about my story? You know, mm. um, or I ended up like, speaking in a lot of churches and in, in places where the debate was going on and I would I would be asked to speak there and then people come up after and say I want to tell you about what I'm going through right now can you pray for me and um uh heartbreaking heartbreaking stories of um stupid brittle heartless interpretations of the bible that broke up families and drove people to despair and and I just knew that as a pastor, I must be with the victims of bad interpretation of the Bible and not be a perpetrator of that anymore. And it's like everything came together. My studies of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, um, you know, my resistance to right-wing evangelicalism when it supported torture after 9-11, you know, um, uh, the... Uh, you know, the, my experience of, of watching women get kicked out of teaching positions because they were female, it, it all just came together. You know what? I went to Union Seminary in the late 1980s. You know what kind of school Union is? Yeah. It's a liberation of school. It has been for decades. Right. But in the late 80s, I was a Southern Baptist white kid who was not fully ready. And so I reacted to Union's liberationism, people like James Cone, with distance and like thank you very much i'm glad to be exposed to your ideas i am not going to allow them to change me very much mm. it took me it took me all of these experiences for me to realize that they were right all along mm. and so my story got reintegrated and what i had learned at union and now i mean it now came to me on the other side of evangelicalism you know yeah so. yeah i appreciate that and it's good hearing your trajectory as someone who, you know, I teach at Masai University and, and maybe I have uh, the younger version of David Gushy in my classroom sometimes who, mm -hmm. who I think sometimes think I'm a heretic. So, um, and I try to <laughs> encourage myself that, you know, where they are at this moment is not the end of their story. Right. right. Um, but, but I'm really uh, appreciate, I mean, as someone, I am a big believer in like thinking theologically about, epistemology our ways of knowing in the world right and that's kind of you know talk about the obliviousness of privilege and mm -hmm. dominant culture and people needing to get out of that 
So I'm thinking about this text here in Matthew 7. Can you invite us into like what it might look like to break out of that obliviousness and enter a text like this and to read it in such liberating ways? Well, here's, here's what I see in this text at this point. And um, it's in the concluding chapter of the new book, this text comes back. Um, I think that Jesus was resolutely clear in, in saying that he was teaching a way, a way of um, liberation from human oppression and injustice and violence and wrongdoing um, that, that when fully realized amounts to and will amount to the kingdom of God. Um, and in this, he was fully in keeping with the, the deepest insights of the Jewish tradition, and I think especially of the prophets. Mm-hmm. So he really meant it when he says, I don't really so much care about your stated allegiance to me as I care about whether you're doing God's will. And now I'm going to tell you what God's will is. And God's will is liberating the oppressed and um, including the outcast and preventing violence and fighting fiercely against oppression and loving your neighbors, including your enemies and uh, all of that. It's forgiving and telling the truth and keeping your promises um, and, and making this world more like what God intended this world to be all along. And and I, I truly believe that that is extremely difficult, not just because human beings are sinners broadly or generically, but because we don't even know how self-deceived we are about the, the, the gap between how we're living and how Jesus teaches us God's will, what God's yeah. will looks like. Yeah. Um, we, and especially the more, um, the more privilege we have, the more self-deception we have to uh, build into our lives in order not to see the gap between our lives and the way Jesus teaches people to live. Mm -hmm. Um, So I also believe in essentially a praxis-oriented Christianity that Jesus teaches a way. Glenn Stassen definitely believed this. Jesus teaches a way of living. It is concrete. It is clear what, what you're supposed to do most of the time. It's not a matter of complexity, it's a matter of obedience in most cases. Um, and, and so I'm more impressed the further I go at how difficult it is to actually live out that way because of, not just because, again, of generic human sinfulness, but because we need to tell ourselves lies in order to have a good conscience about the things we are doing that are at variance with the will of God. Mm. Um, and more broadly, when I think of the course of Euro, Euro-American colonizing imperial Christianity, <laughs> you know, slaveholding Christianity, um, wiping out indigenous cultures Christianity while going to church on Sunday, you know, um, racist Jim Crow Christianity, patriarchal Christianity, anti-gay Christianity, we are embedded in um, patterns of sin that are centuries old and so to actually 
live the will of God as Jesus taught it is profoundly counter historical in the sense of our history, counter counter natural, counter what everybody around us is doing, and therefore it's a path of of loneliness and uh, often rejection. Mm. Um, but yet one finds community there. It's a remnant path. So that's why I really believe that Jesus meant when he said, when he said basically the path is narrow, <laughs> the way is narrow. Um, and there are a whole lot more people who say, Lord, Lord, than do anything or approaching what Jesus taught. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And, and I, I was just having this conversation with students this week about just, you know, I mean, you talk about the ways in which Christianity's been so entangled in death dealing forces, colonialism, yeah. white supremacy, patriarchy, right? Um, and just so to take Jesus seriously and actually follow Jesus when the inertia is so strong, I mean, it does take a different kind of, uh, you know, intentionality, community, um, yeah. like, you know, like all these, yeah. um, yeah. That, that I think we don't take, we, we can, it's so easy to just be like, oh yeah, Jesus, right? And not see all the entanglements with death dealing forces in our lives. Um, so yeah, that gap is a very real gap, right? That we, all of us have to kind of keep coming back to um, the ways that we participate. Um, and I include that even in the black church, right? Um, <laughs> that, that, that we um, may strong in one area and sometimes entangled in other, in other yeah. ways that we're not even aware of. Yeah. Jesus, um, we have domesticated Jesus and assumed that all those warnings were about other people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but those warnings are to us, yeah. to yeah. those who have ears to hear. Yeah. And, um, and we are not, I mean, we don't build our, our houses on the rock. Jesus says, love your enemies. And we don't. Yeah. Jesus says, forgive those 70 times seven. And we don't, you know, yeah. Um, turn the other cheek. We don't. Um, but we also don't do justice and we don't cry out for the oppressed. And I mean, I, if you, if you think of the entire justice message of the prophets as also present in the preaching of Jesus, which right. it really was, it really is. Yep. Uh, then, <laughs> then we don't do that. We're more yeah. like those who, who, uh, you know, go to the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and assume that we are safe. Yeah. And that's yeah. Jeremiah seven. And yep. I think Jesus lived in the spirit of Jeremiah seven. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yep. David, you, you opened the, the shutter just a little bit um, around um, uh, that sadness and suffering and rejection that led to the writing yeah. um, of your text in 2014. And um, I don't know if you know Father John Deere. Um, he's a dear friend, excuse the pun. Uh, I've heard um, of him and everybody says I need to know him. So oh, maybe, maybe you can make, make a bridge. Yeah. Well, in fact, connection. you know, like if that hasn't happened before, we, we would gladly do that on a podcast is introduce yeah. you both. And, and that oh, would be fun. Really fun. Let's do that. that, that and he's been that, a guest. Be awesome. He's been on Inverse. Several yeah. times. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the things he said to me years ago that ministered to me in ways that kept my head above water um, after pouring out my heart on a walk with him. And he said, Jared, did you really think you could follow Jesus who was rejected? And betrayed and yourself not be rejected and betrayed as well <laughs> i share that um 
as an invitation, if you wanted to open that shutter a little bit wider and the, the kind of um, pain of um, solidarity, uh, which is different to the, the pain of um, giving up a power we were never meant to have. Um, would you, yeah, there's just permission if you'd like to go there. Thanks, Jared. Um, I, I had little taste of it. Uh, so in 2006, I wrote an article called Five Reasons Why Torture is Always Wrong. And the most ferocious uh, pushback came from my fellow Christians, um, <laughs> in, in, including uh, people where I worked. Um, wow. Uh, treasonous article, completely out of touch with, you know, anything in the Christian tradition. You know, you get little bits of that now and again. And it didn't, that didn't feel good. Um, mm. But I think, I think this is, to be really blunt, honest with you, I wrote Changing Our Mind at a time when um, my mother was dying, my father-in-law had just died, and Glenn Stassen had just died. Mm. And, um, and I had a friend who later wisely said, watch out for doing anything big when you're in the middle of grief, because you may not be thinking clearly. She said, it's kind of like being drunk. You might be a little bit mm -hmm. off. But I actually think that aperture, you know, you might say that it, that woundedness opened me to the woundedness of the people that I was writing about. And maybe it was like, you know, kind of like to hell with caution, I need to go ahead and write this book. But there was a naivete because I thought that my stature in the evangelical community carefully built up over 20 years would allow me to say some things and be heard that others would just be dismissed. Right. So in other words, I think I was banking on my privilege a little bit. Right. And, and uh, that's a bad move. And, um, and so what happened was that privilege and that a status disappeared overnight. Mm -hmm. um, I was invited, I had a lectureship in Australia cancel. I had, uh, uh, you know, even Kingdom Ethics InterVarsity had to cancel me. You talk about cancel culture. I was culture. in my city, David. Yeah, is that right? Yep. yep. Uh, I was supposed at, to come, I was at, supposed to come to the seminary Perth. named for my wife's grandfather, Dr. No Mark. way. Yeah. Um, can you get me invited there now? <laughs> Probably not. Um, I, I can I can get you disinvited <laughs> again if you're associated with me. <laughs> there you go. Jerry has go. gotten many people in trouble. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so okay, so that happened. That happened during that time. A lot of other things. And then the 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 personal attacks from former friends. I mean, like my two best friends turned on me. Mm. Best friends. Wow. In in That's public, funny. in public ways. Wow. Um so um the thing was though as you were kind of suggesting i had never really tasted blood <laughs> like that in my following of jesus or in my career it had been you know one book after another and one lecture invitation after another and one moment of honor after another um disappointments and hard times but nothing like this and, and so then when I, when I, I met 
and heard hundreds of stories of people who said, let me tell you about the blood taste in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about what it was like to be in my church, to be yeah. kicked out of my family. Remember one time I just did a little like Skype back when people did Skype. Um, I did a little Skype at a, at a Baptist university out in the Midwest. And um, the, one of the young ladies in that group looked me up later and said, um, this summer I came out to my parents as lesbian and they literally kicked me down the stairs and then out of the house. They physically kicked me down the stairs. Hmm. And then they called my school and asked the school to remove all my scholarships because I was a wretched sinner. Wow. Um, In the name of Jesus. And, but the reason she wanted to tell me that story was because she trusted that I would care and that I knew something about rejection and, and that I would be somebody who would be with her. I would be in solidarity with her. Um, And my people at that time, you know, saying, if, if you would just renounce this mistaken book, we will welcome you back. And it's like, really? No, thank you. Yeah. I belong. I wrote somewhere else. I belong in the company of the bullied, not in the company of the bullies. Mm-hmm. And that's where I've tried to be ever since. And, and that's exactly where Christ's people are supposed to be. That's where Jesus was executed on a cross naked at a trash dump rejected as a criminal and a heretic that's where his people are supposed to be it's not fun though you don't wake up in the morning and saying i feel like being crucified today but sometimes you are led on a path that gets you there that's what happened to me Hmm. that's heavy david so and that's my that's my story. That's what happened. We're thankful for your work and witness, um, and that you care more about a people um, than you do a book or acceptability in in certain circles. That often the glue that holds them together a rejection of those people. David, I'm aware with texts like the one that you've chosen. Um, for privileged people, the repulsion of such texts, much like the preparatory psalms or um, uh, uh, violence in the Hebrew Bible, um, that people's response to the story of the Exodus is, um, you know, oh, the, those poor soldiers that drowned, that's not very nonviolent, um, instead of initial identification with um, what it is to be decimated, humiliated, and destroyed in such a way that you would um, cry out for the destruction of your enemies. Or um, the, the text that you've chosen, um, Jesus is using um, um, sharp, evocative language about eternity. Um, as someone who um, uh, has been through these experiences, I'm interested in uh, not just what do you make of that, but I'm interested in what would you make of it now and what ways is it pastoral now that previous before um, being found amongst the bullied, uh, it might have not been your go-to response pastorally. Um, well, you know, Sermon on the Mount has always been central, uh, like in Kingdom Ethics is the organizing yeah. text. Um 
I always, I always thought of it as the summit, the summative moment in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, um, uh, this is Matthew 7, 21 through 27, Tabitha, um, where, where someone says, um, you know, what does Jesus really require? What Jesus really requires is that we practice what he taught. Okay. And so that, that then uh, helps to clarify that Christian ethics, at least, is about obedience to the way of Jesus concretely taught in a hundred different teachings, right? Um, it's not about just professing creeds or, or uh, saying, I accept Jesus into my heart or something like that. So it's not just about doctrine and it's not just about orthodoxy or even formulaic kinds of uh, belief statements. So that's what I would have once said, right? But what's much sharper now is it's like Jesus is, is saying, you know, <laughs> this whole massive religion is going to be born around me. And the vast majority of people who are going to profess my name um, are not going to practice my teachings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, have a nice millennium and, you know, there you go. Um, but, I mean, it's... it's um, it helps us not have a domesticated Jesus. This is a fierce Jesus. This is a Jesus who mm. does not like does not like people claiming God's name and not doing what God wants. Um, and especially if we locate this fierce Jesus on the side of the oppressed, yeah, as he does, then you know, uh, blessed are you when you are persecuted for justice's sake. That's the way the way I translate that in Matthew yeah. five. Yep. Uh, um. So, it's. It, um, it separates the sheep from the goats in a new way, and it makes us ask, um, what aspects of the way of Jesus are we systematically missing? What this means about eternity, like Judgment Day and what happens to people when they die, um, I mean, it's pretty scary, but I actually find it comforting because Jesus is upholding the norm, which is he is about a certain way of being on the, in the world, a way of justice um, in a way of mercy, in a way of compassion, that is how we should live, and that it was always what was taught in Scripture. And so let's get after it and do it, and God will sort it out on the other side. I'm not really going to be about who's in and who's out. I just know what it is we're called to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I picture, I picture uh, all the great dissenters of Christian history, you know, the abolitionists and Bartolome de las Casas opposing the uh, conquistadores in yeah in Latin America and um, the rescuers during the Holocaust. Um, I was just teaching about them today at Mercer. Um, they're all people who, who got this, who lived this, and who I hear Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. That's, that's where I want to be. Yeah. No guarantee. That's where I want to be. Yeah. And this is at the same time, a text where even though it's like, it seems like it's so plain, right? Like Jesus is like, these are my teachings, put them into practice, right? And yet I've heard it taught as like, the rock is just the name of Jesus rather than the teachings, <laughs> right? In the Sermon on the Mount, like somehow like people make these- Despite what Jesus said. Right, despite <laughs> yeah. what Jesus said, there's like all the like, 
you know, intellectual gymnastics that are done to still domesticate a text that's trying to be as plain as possible to actually have us put it into practice. And yet somehow it's still turned into something else, right? I don't know if you've heard that, David, but like, that's just like a move that some people like to make with this text Drew, or aspects of it. Yeah. That is so awful, Drew. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, I mean, what is the, the rock? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rock is the is the way of Jesus. Um, uh, so uh, Glenn Stassen, if he were here, he would say, aha, that's another example of Christian evasion. We yes. are ingenious, yep. ingenious in evading the teachings of touring, Jesus, skirting, skirting, domesticating, diluting, all uh, of that, right? Over and over again. Yeah. It's ex extraordinary ability that we have to do that. Right. That's exactly what I said this week. I said, <laughs> I was like, you got to admit the cleverness of it all, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's quite skillful, thoughtful, um, and creative in terms of how we can domesticate Jesus over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just easier to like get a big response to an altar call if you make the text about like claiming a, a magical formula or saying the right thing yeah. or um, rather than like calling people to a life of yes being yes, um, a r radical confrontational dignity in inducing um, cheek turning, um, uh, like enemy love, um, uh, it, sharing all in common instead of like Solomon and his empire building kind of takes on uh, what it is to trust like the lilies of the field. I mean, that's just a difficult altar call, David. Yeah. You know, the good thing um, uh, about that very conservative Baptist church that I first became a Christian in is they did say this, the commitment you are making is not just accepting Jesus as your savior, but following him as your Lord. Mm. That, that language is better than a lot of other formulas, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> um, because it at least says, by the way, you're making a commitment. It's kind of like getting married. You're making a covenant that has certain implications and you better be aware of those implications because you are to be held accountable to them. Yeah. And, and so the Lordship of Christ language that Glenn really valued a lot because Glenn yeah. Sesson, because the Lordship of Christ makes demands. Now, some people, that's like old school language or patriarchal or something, and it is, I guess. But the idea is that there is a person who is in charge of our lives. If we've made a commitment to him, he speaks about how we are to live and he means it. Yeah. And it's better for us and better for the world anyway. Yeah. If we live that way, it is the path of liberation. And so it's not, these are not oppressive burdens. These are liberative practices uh, that are transformative, make our lives better and make the world better. David, I'm so aware that um, uh, the chickens have come home to roost for so much of evangelical Christianity globally at the moment. Like we're, we're literally watching houses crash um, and, and, and fall down because people have not put Jesus's teachings into action, um, uh, but have somehow made grace instead of participating um, in God's delivering work have made an excuse not to <laughs> right, for, right. for those who um, are hearing this and still hear grace is the excuse why we don't actually have to get caught up in what God desires um, or the will of God. 
um, uh, what kind of word would you offer while people's Christianities are falling apart? And I guess my earlier question um, speaks to that as well. Like Jesus' language of um, um, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. There's the King James there you go. <laughs> that, that I have memorized from my childhood. Um, uh, it, that kind of language, so many people are quick to jump um, uh, from uh, what might sound apocalyptic and, and punitive um, to something that is soft and nice without hearing um, talk of hell um, from the oppressed, um, from that place, and then what that language and um, how that imagery and poetry operates differently, um, but no less um, uh, aggressively maybe than the kind of fundamentalist take on, on those same texts. A as things fall apart from people, um, would you invite people into grace as something other than um, excuse giving? Um, I think that the the through line or a through line of scripture is is grace divine grace and i would understand it this way through god's gracious love something exists rather than nothing creation through god's gracious love um the marvelous uh opportunity to be a human being um made in the image of god and to live on this planet for a while has been offered to us um, through God's grace, our recalcitrance and rebellion has been responded to with love and mercy, sacrificial love uh, enacted, especially at the cross. Um, and through God's grace, we are offered guidance, direction uh, for how we are to live a truly human life, uh, a life of love of God and love of neighbor, a life of true flourishing in which our dignity and the dignity of others is built up and respected and advanced. Um, and through grace, we are welcome back when we lose the thread and lose the path. Um, the door is always open. Uh, but it is a grace that is not just a, a gift that we passively receive. It is uh, an invitation to participation. Um, come, it's like Jesus, like Jesus, there's a door open and Jesus is at the door and he, he's reaching his hand back to us and he's saying, come with me through this door and we will do beautiful things together. We will build a kingdom together, a reign of uh, transformation and, and mercy and liberation. Um, to say, thank you so much for the offer. I believe in you. You can go through that door yourself. I'll just stay over here. Is not what, <laughs> it's not what we're being invited to. We're being in, invited to participation in a project that is this worldly, a project of transformation and love and mercy that I think it has otherworldly implications, but we're mainly supposed to trust God for that. And meanwhile, do our bit, you know, in this world right now. So uh, that uh, grace is participative. It's an invitation. And so Bonhoeffer was right. that cheap grace is what um, a lot of Christians have made of the message. God loves you. Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. Believe in it say yes to that you get to go to heaven and meanwhile go back to your normally scheduled life that that's cheap grace and that's not what we're called to that's good well david thank you this has been really good um just grateful for the conversation and i know um this is going to be uh 
both encouraging and as well as I'm sure many of our listeners just will identify with um, even just the costliness of what it means to actually put into practice, right? This, that it puts us into solidarity, but also the alienation, the hardship and broken relationships that also come with it. Um, and so thank you for the vulnerability and for sharing your story. Um, it's going to be really um, meaningful for a lot of folks. Thanks for that. And uh, I think I've revealed more of what happened behind the scenes on this particular conversation than almost any other one that I can remember. And so I'm glad that you you invited me to do that. And I hope that it is helpful to other people. David, uh, we're just so thankful for a Christian ethicist who actually followed Jesus. <laughs> like, <laughs> thanks, mate. Like, really, like, it, it's just, it's uh, like, uh, I, I hear all that pain but i'm just so thankful for your work and witness and how your witness makes us hear your work in different ways um uh, you have been one of the influences on um placing biography at the center of how i consider theology um and uh, your willingness to invite us into your own vulnerability in this space um uh, is an incredible gift and i just want to acknowledge that um, but your your willingness to actually go this narrow path um, and get caught up in what the one Jesus calls other desires um, means that your work resonates in ways um, that is, is heard differently. Um, and, and without getting too Pentecostal, I do think there is a spiritual power in that. I, I do think that the, what you've put on page um, is, is perceived and it, it resonates differently um, because of what you've lived and what it's cost you. So thank you. Thanks, Jared. You know, I, that helps me put together something. If I could just reflect for just one second. Please, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, David, we're happy to spend all day with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's getting late here. Uh, but anyway, uh, before 2014, I was a writing ethicist, right? Mm. A scholar who writes books, right? After 2014, something changed because of what happened in my journey and the things that I've been writing and speaking about since then, it's different. Yeah, it is. It is. There is a different kind of um, pain slash authenticity, uh, something spiritual power that's yeah. there. And yeah. so it's, it's a, a different stage of my journey. And, um, and I hope that in this new book uh, that is called introducing Christian ethics, some people were asking, what was the title? Um, that that actually makes its way into an ethics intro text in a way that has never been done before because mm. because I cannot write anymore without that story bleeding into the writing. It yes. is it is part of who I am and, and how I do my work now. So so it's it's I, I can never go back to that kind of academic dispassionate writing, whatever. It's done, it's over. Can't do it. Yeah. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.